Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on, on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is my final week hosting this show after nearly seven years. I'm not going anywhere. I'll still be at Connecticut Public, taking on a new role where I'll be working more closely with communities statewide. More on that later this week. But over the last few episodes, we've revisited topics that mean a lot to me and that have been featured on where we live in different ways over the years, like Connecticut history and wildlife biology. And today, mental health and mental health care. Coming up where we live, we hear from two Connecticut women who have powerful stories. Both have experienced trauma and both have worked to help others in their communities get access to culturally responsive mental health treatment. That's important when considering the stigma and barriers and cultural fluency needed in mental health care. Joining us first on Zoom is Thien V. Koch, She's a survivor of the Cambodian genocide in the 1970s. She came to the U.S. as a refugee in 1981. And in 1982, she founded and became director of the Khmer Health Advocates. The organization is based in West Hartford and works to ensure appropriate health care access to the Cambodian-American survivors of the Khmer Rouge genocide, along with their families. And she's worked with the National Cambodian Community. And in 1991, President George Bush named her the point of light for her volunteer work with refugees. Thienvi Coach, welcome to our show. Thank you. Sorry. <clears throat> Thank you. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Thinvi, I mentioned that you survived the Khmer Rouge uh, regime. As many as two to three million Cambodians were killed in the 1970s, and the deaths included 19 of your family members. I'm so sorry to hear that this happened to you. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Can you tell us about your early days in Connecticut? You arrived here, I believe, more than 40 years ago. Yes, when uh, I arrived here in uh, Connecticut, you know, 40, 40 years ago. And when I was um, integrated to the refugee camp, I worked with a refugee uh, community through um through German uh, relief when, uh, and then it was uh, my 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 spirit, my energy, were changing completely because during the concentration camp for over three years, I became nothing. Every day, I know that it just a matter of time that the Khmer Rouge will kill me for no reason. And when I came to the camp, I was be able to be treated, you know, um, compassionately. And uh, the German uh, clinic had trained me 
to work with the, the people who has been injured and they immigrate to uh, from the uh, from the concentration camp to the uh, um, to the camp refugee camp in Thailand. Mm. And at that time, I was um, I was feel so much better. You know, I feel like I'm I have some uh, power. I have some energy that I feel good about myself. I feel like I can help people. And I forget about my pain at that time because I'm listening to the people. I help the people. My life was very busy. Um, so at that time, uh, when I immigrated to the United States, uh, which is a very difficult because the immigration had asked me so many times. And uh, I feel like I've been, you know, tortured again by asking something that I don't remember. And... Uh, when I came to the United States, and all I was thinking about, how can I uh, be able to help the refugees, the people who uh, have come, you know, to uh, United States and have not uh, received any help or are not able to help? Because during the Khmer Rouge, the Cambodian, beside my family, most of them, their family died, you know, only one left. Some of them have a few left. So what it means that the Cambodian have no family come with them. And uh, for that reason, I am begin. I was very lucky to meet with three nurses who had worked at the refugee camp, mm. who have a, a deep compassion, want to work with me to give a birth to Khmer advocates. So it sounded like you needed compassion. And when you received that, you wanted to return that compassion to others who were going through the same thing, Fiend V. You mentioned uh, the nurses. I believe you worked with someone named Mary Scully. How did uh, that partnership help you open Khmer Health Advocates in Connecticut? Um, Well, uh, Mary Mary Scully, also, you know, the other nurse, um, Irene Lynn Kirby, Three of them had worked with me constant. And uh, finally, you know, we, gave, uh, we decide to have something that the place for the uh, refugee uh, to Cambodian refugees uh, who come to Connecticut, what we have place, you know, to, um, to seek help, comfort, and understanding. So it was important to have someone that was aware of the culture to help uh, the survivors who, like you, were dealing with post-traumatic stress, Thienvi? Yes. And uh, we began to work, you know, in the beginning. Uh, we went to the um, the refugees' house. I myself, you know, go to a uh, greeting Cambodian-American uh, who came uh, to the um, the airport, and I all I could remember that were two kids. You know, right now they are in in uh, Watertown. Um, one was eight year. I think uh, one was about eight four years old, and uh, they was asked me to go to inside the air uh, airplane to pick him up. I remember that he was um, sleeping, and then by having me, you know to hold him and put him on my shoulder. He was having no fear at all. It was so comforting. And then all he say, it was cold, you know. And that's, you know, remain on my heart and my until today, that how 
have compassion, comfort, understanding. It get into um, you don't have to talk, you don't have to say anything, but the sense of connecting, you know, and that can feel from one to the other. And also myself, you know, and Mary Scully, uh, we had go to visit. We don't know, you know, we just do it because uh, I think it feel like that's the right way to do. We went to visit Cambodian who came to, just came to uh, to Connecticut and all we bring, um, some clothes, blanket, uh, hair dryer, and uh, some fish sauce, some uh, rice, something that they uh, they had, you know, uh, eat when they was in Cambodia or in the camp. They were so, so happy because when Cambodian came to uh, Connecticut, they don't, they don't speak English. And most of them, they, like I mentioned before, they don't have a family, left a lot of family with them. So they are pretty isolated, uh, uh, isolated, uh, uh, isolated. But at that time, I think Cambodian, include myself, a lot of numb that we cannot have pain or we cannot think about anything. And we all we have to think, we concentrate on how are we going to survive, you know? So that was so, what's so important. And uh, when we um, uh, doing that constant, and I think the trust between the Cambodian community and Khmer Health Advocate was a really strongly engaged. Right. And that you brings know, I could, me, yeah. Thienvi, that brings me to my next question, because when you okay. think about that trust that you were helping develop, that people needed uh, to feel that they were cared for, that they could heal, you would become a community health worker because that's also needed. Can you tell us more? Yes, uh, I am the community health worker in the camp. And I'm just back a little bit, you know, back home traditionally, uh, when someone's sick, you know, I remember when my grandmother was sick and my mother and my sister was so busy, you know, helping. It was a very tiny and worried that is she gonna die, she gonna stay. And that, at that time we have a distant family, we have, uh, you know, people who live, neighbor who live near us, will bring the food, will come to say, okay, now you can rest, you know, so let we take care of that. So community health is not exist, you know. Just recently, traditionally, we have a community health work worker on board since since back home, but we don't use that as community health worker. So that's why when I was in the camp, I became a community health worker, provide, you know, the services to the community when they need. And then here in the United States, I am still a community health worker, even though I'm right now, I'm the executive director or I'm the, um, you know, family therapist, but I will never give up my community health worker. We all, you know, play so many heads to work together because a refugee is not only need uh, medication, not only need, need housing, not only, it, you talk about social determinant of health. So everybody, you know, myself, uh, all the teamwork here have to be flexible. That include, you know, the, um, uh, include the pharmacists, you know, doctor as well. They will go, you know, to the community and give out some uh, blood pressure cup and stuff like that. So we never, you know, work in one position. 
You're hearing Thane V. Coach here where we live, Executive Director of the Khmer Health Advocates. Again, this is an organization based in West Hartford. It works to ensure appropriate health care access to the Cambodian-American survivors of the Khmer Rouge genocide, along with their families. Thane V. is one of those survivors who would take her experience, uh, the trauma that she endured, and to find a way uh, to work on culturally responsive health care for Cambodian survivors here in our state. You can join us if you have a question or comment, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, when we think about ways to help uh, Cambodian survivors today living in our state, Thien V, um, can you talk about how you and your colleagues at Khmer Health Advocates are working on new tools to measure both risk and resiliency? Um. Well, I'm talking about new tool about uh, uh, for 40 years plus, you know. And we know from the get-go until today that community health worker who work direct with the community, that, you know, the tool uh, that to heal um, the community. Because one, I'm talking about social isolation, and second, about language barrier, and uh, the third, you know, the trust, and uh, the force, um, they they afraid the authority. You know, even though you heard Cambodians speak English, but one, they get afraid because of trauma. They totally, you know, messed up. And that's why I just want to share with you that uh, when you talk about refugee, you always to talk about trauma. Trauma affect our mind, our body and spirit. You know, we want you, trauma is processed in a different way. Want you have a trauma so many times, you know, when something happens, you know, your mind and your body and your spirit acting up without any signal, you know. So, for instance, I just want to uh, tell you by one of the, the story, if, if you I may have time. I think my daughter-in-law, who been traumatized, and she drove with me to um, to uh, to um, uh, to Bridgeport, and we, uh, somehow we passed New Haven, and uh, we passed the exit. As soon as I said that, well, we have to come back. You know, we have to uh, stop, uh, turn, and to exit. This in New Haven. As soon as she knew that was New Haven, her leg was froze. She couldn't push the gate. You know, uh, she couldn't drive. And uh, right in the highway, I was so scared. You know, I told her to to, to park in, uh, to uh, drive, you know, near the side of the long, uh, the road, which is a 91. And uh, she couldn't, she couldn't uh, push on the brake, you know. She, she completely freeze. So that's why trauma, you need support, you need care, you need compassion, and you need to listen to their story. Yeah. And medicine is a part of the healing, but the healing has come from the community, come from understanding, come from sharing, and come from the community health worker. Thinvi, I have another question for you, because when we think about um, the, the idea of generational trauma, uh, some of these survivors, again, enduring what you endured, in the 1970s, and they now have uh, children or grandchildren. Uh, maybe they have new families here. How do you work with their families as well? 
Well, I think that, you know, you ask a very important question. And right now, and those, you know, uh, issue is still going on because uh, my generation, we know our identity. Even though, you know, we came to United States, we know that who we are, what happened to us, how many of our people died, and who killed our family. You know, we know all these things. And for the secondary, you know, uh, traumatized generation, and it's very difficult because they don't know uh, their identity. So when they came here, they more engaged into, you know, a new culture which is very uh, difficult. It seems like uh, the family who live with their uh, children, they have a two separate culture because the, the family spoke, you know, uh, broken English and then the children spoke very uh, fluent in English, but uh, they couldn't understand more Cambodian language. So I think that this is, you know, the issue that you know, we, we need to um, working on, but usually, I'm using, you know, uh, doctor. I don't really know about that, but uh, this doctor, he's a, his name, Aaron Nash. Uh, he's the hungry, you know, American psychiatrist and one of the, the founder of the female family therapy. And uh, I, I, he was my teacher. And when he see, you know, people, he see as a family, he not see us in detail. So when he see family, he try to look into, uh, he talk to the family. So the balance, you know, the trust, you know, what each family do to the other. Is it balance? Is it, you know, not? Or the other thing too, he, um, when you work with the family, you could see, you know, who, um, who, who have, you know, who didn't do anything that to meet the need of the family. And also the family could hear the story from uh, each other, you know, like the kid, who I've been working with the kid who, I think the story very important. The kid has to hear the story of their parent, you know, what their parent uh, come through. So there is no judgment. Mm. So, but now I think that we need, um, we need to have uh, something that project and that, that can do more because I think the young generation is the, the bamboo shoot that they need to be strong. One you have, you know your identity, no one could push you. But if you don't know your identity, you became weak. So that's why I think this is a very, very, very important. And uh, I just want to say one more thing. I think that, um, oh, let's see. Um, you know, uh, I think that in India, you were talking about uh, Meta, Karna, Mudira, and Obeka. So you know, when you work with the kid, you can't blame them. You how you work with compassion and nurturing them because they 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 are so innocent. And the thing that they have a problem or they don't understand, not because of their fault. So we need to nurture them. So by saying that meta karna mudira obeka, meta, that means compassion. Karna, you have to have compassion and action. Mudira, you have to bring joy. Because Cambodian American come to United States, you may see them, you know, dress very well. You may see them have money. You may see them laugh. You may, you know, but, when they, they sit and talk to you, it's just like a all 
their body and spirit is broken. Mm-hmm. And uh, also the last one, Obeka. That means you have to look closely to them and make and make sure that you calm. Because when you work with the refugee, if the therapist or a community health worker have anxiety, you know, or worry, and that, you know, is not going to work. You have to learn how to be calm and say, things going to be okay. So, well, you are very strong person. You immigrate to the United States. It's very difficult, and you're going to be have a courage to continue on to help your family. Thank you, Finvi Coach, again, here where we live. She's executive director of Khmer Health Advocates based in West Hartford. Uh, the group works to ensure appropriate health care access to the Cambodian-American survivors of the Khmer Rouge genocide, along with their families. Coming up, we're going to talk to another Connecticut resident who came to the U.S. Uh, after leaving India with her family in the early 1980s due to anti-Sikh violence. Today, Rina Kaur Aurora works to reduce stigma about mental health in the local Sikh community and to increase culturally responsive health care as part of her work with Connect, congregations organized for a new Connecticut that's made up of 30 congregations statewide. And we also will learn more about her work with the Guru Tej Bahadur Ji Gurudwara in Norwalk. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us at Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today we're talking to two Connecticut residents who are survivors of genocide. Earlier we heard from Thien Vicoch, executive director of the Khmer Health Advocates based in West Hartford. Uh, she and her colleagues working to help Cambodian-American survivors of the Khmer Rouge genocide along with their families. And joining us now is Rena Kaur Aurora, who came to our state, uh, to the U.S., then to Connecticut, after fleeing India with her family in the early 1980s 
due to anti-Sikh violence. Today, she works to reduce stigma about mental health in the local Sikh community and to increase culturally responsive health care. She leads the health care and mental health team for Connect or Congregations Organized for a New Connecticut. And she's an active member of the Guru Tej Bahadur Ji Gurdwara in Norwalk. Rina, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I wanted to hear a little of your personal story as well. Like we asked Dean V, you and your family moved to the U.S. in 1989, I believe, when you were 20. And this was after, I believe, your oldest sibling, a brother, uh, died in the anti-Sikh violence happening there at the time. First off, I'm so sorry to hear about your family's loss. What do you want our listeners to know about your brother? So my brother was very smart, intelligent, uh, Sikh, very good Sikh person. And uh, he was studying in uh, Allahabad University. He was a college student, computer science. And uh, he was that time 19 going on 20, uh, something like that. Uh, and uh, I have uh, three more, uh, two more siblings. So we were four. And uh, during the Sikh genocide in 1984, uh, basically mobs came to your homes, to your work. Everybody was burning and looting our factories. My father was a carpet manufacturer in Mirzapur. And uh, we, it was just very, very traumatic. Uh, he was uh, beaten up and burned alive. My father had to, once he found out that because the town was a little further, that something has happened to him, he went there and he had to pick up his bones with his own. Like I remember my dad bringing uh, him in a bag, in a small bag, his bones and ashes. And I couldn't believe that was my brother who was almost five, 10, 11. And uh, it was very traumatic for my mom. Mm. And we didn't realize, I mean, obviously that time you were in a survival mode as Timmy said too that um, there were people coming to our house and there were girls were being mass raped. So obviously my parents uh, were trying to protect girls. Uh, some of my family member, like they said, put the girls somewhere, hide them. And they shoved me in the closet and they had one gun. One of the neighbor had one gun and he said, you know, I can't control these thousands of people, but I can definitely, uh, I will shoot you guys. So you don't get in their hands and you have to forgive me for shooting you. So we knew that if the closet opens, we will be dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember going in, looking for light, sunlight and uh, passing out. And then um, in between what was happening, I was not aware of because I then took, they took me out because somehow they were able to manage to deter the crowds because they had some bricks and they threw some bricks on the crowd and then people got hurt, they kind of knew. And there was a gun, somebody fired. So they knew that there's a protection for them. So we kind of survived, but my brother didn't. Mm. And yes. Again, we're so sorry to hear about that experience and your brother's loss. Uh, You and your family would then flee India and you arrived in New York and, and you said this, of course, was very hard for all of you, including your mother, can you tell us um, how you saw her reaching out for help and, and what did help, Rena? So for first decade, 
we didn't even realize that there is an issue because in India, depression is not something that discussed around the families. Even though in India, Sikh community has gone through during partition in 1947, uh, our families had to flee uh, other side of the uh, now, which is Pakistan and come to India and they had to resettle as refugees. So that was a traumatic experience for them. I know that my grandmother had been affected by it, but we didn't know how to verbalize what it is. And eventually, um, when we came to first to Punjab, Punjab was still bad, and then we came to US. And when we came to US, it was more like a survival mode. You just go on, try to figure out how are you going to land in New York with two suitcases, just your clothes and things on your back and you start and we all started doing small jobs to get started, get into the schools. And uh, my mother would be crying and not be able to focus and would fall with the lethargicness and some days will be good, she'll be fine. And some days she'll be completely distorted. Like somebody will come and kill her now and somebody will break the family, somebody will harm us. So those things will kind of, and the moment, like even my brother died, my father said, if your mom is not able to handle this, so I want you to handle everything. So as a 17 year old girl, I had to suddenly in a moment rise up and become a second mom to my siblings who were 14 and 12. And I didn't know anything. I was a very naive, sheltered girl. And uh, slowly, slowly, I paid attention to everything. I even had to, without, and we couldn't discuss anything outside because that's taught in Indian culture that it's your family thing, don't talk to anyone. Mm -hmm. Rather, family does not talk to each other. And, uh, because they just want to be in a mode that let's just become stronger. But we had a lot of love and respect for each other. And I think that helped us. And at, after a decade or so, somebody recognized that my mom is going through depression. And they said, uh, this something needs to be healed. And first, we couldn't believe it. Then she said, okay, I will go out for help because I want to be good for my family. And she went to a psychologist who was not obviously Indian. And when my dad took her and he's like, I don't like it because you have to tell the stories. Mm -hmm. We don't like sharing stories to psychologists. And what if he doesn't understand me? And he doesn't know, he's just listening. You know, they went for sessions and then she was prescribed Prozac and she took it. She was having a lot of side effects. Then she'll give up. Then she will feel like, okay, she'll be fine. We'll all love each other. We'll be there for each other. And it will come back. And another five years gone. And it's like back and forth, not really understanding. And uh, actually, after this inter uh, last interview, we realized as a family, we always focused on mom. But nobody thought about dad in that sense because he always kept the brave front. We know that he would cry in the bathroom because when he comes out of the bathroom after a while, his eyes will be red, but he will never show the family because he's male. He kept everything inside him. And in hindsight, we think about it. We need to pay attention to male, female, 
children, even though we were children, our loss was kind of lesser extent than for our parents. But we were going through things and we didn't know about post-traumatic, you know, PTSD. Mm. So we never looked for help and kept going. But as we were saying also, when the trauma lives in you, at certain points, it comes out and you don't know how to react, how to do things. So it's very important for people to seek out help. Mm. And my mom meditated a lot and that really helped her. Mm. And that also guided us. And Rena, I can hear the love you have for your parents. And I have to say that's a lot for a 17-year-old to carry. What helped you? I'm, as I told you, I was always in survival mode of thing, like because my dad told me I had to be responsible. So I just kept on helping everybody else around me. And it's just uh, meditation. I'm a very uh, religious meditate. Like I meditate every day. That helps me. Uh, for the longest time, I never seeked out help for PTSD because I thought I'm living, I'm working, I'm doing things. I finished my education. I have kids. I'm fine. But somewhere the sadness just never goes away mm. and body reacts to that. So I think my kids used to say, mom, you need to go back for getting the PTSD. I did talk to some psychologists and friends. I went for one or two sessions, but I also was like, I'm okay. Mm. But I think we need to work on it. Right. And now you're working to help. <laughs> You're working, Rena, to help others uh, through the work again of, of your religious community, but also Connect. Can you talk about that? So uh, Connect, we came to uh, Connect came to us actually because one of the person I know very well, Ilana Oftong, was she's worked with Sikh, so she knew about Sikh. She came to our gurdwara, and I've been uh, working with as a community out- outreach chair. We go out and do a lot of, we realize that people don't know who Sikhs are. So we took the pre-act, uh, like proactive approach and went out and uh, looked for people. How can we help? How can we engage with the community? Because as you will know that, as you may have known, that many times Sikh Gurdwaras are attacked and there were shootings, and especially after 9-11. So it was our goal to educate people who Sikhs are. But while we were doing this, we are also seeing as living in two culture, our children, our families go through a lot. And and sometimes there is abuse in the system also, the verbal, physical, emotional, financial. So because I had seen mental health uh, and how it impacts a family, I could sense those things very clearly when I meet people. And I said, you know what, if I don't voice it, then people will just not recognize because in our culture, it is still not talked about. Many years when I talked about it, people said, nobody's going to share their story. Nobody's going to talk. I said, I don't need to know their stories. I just want to know that if people are having issue, they get help. And for me, I come from a religion which talks about oneness, treating everybody equally. So the working with Connect also became the same thing. We are not here just for Sikhs. We are here for everyone, anybody who needs help. We want to become a support system. We want to help people. I want to uh, give my help to anybody. So through that work that you're doing, Rena, you know, there is a, a cultural gap, right, in mainstream psychiatric care. How are you bridging that? 
So I've talked to a couple of psychiatrist friends and there is definitely lack of people of color, uh, psychiatrists. So people, when they go out, they feel like we don't have people, enough people who will understand our culture and our thing. So our goal is to try to get some type of either loan forgiveness or something. So the people of color can really work, get more psychologists trained for future. And also we are looking for uh, people who are in extreme spectrum, like we saw when the police was called, how the some cases were mismanaged and some people lost their lives that we should have crisis stabilization center or peer respite centers. So we are really looking in how can we ask our government to help for the cases which are really uh, extreme and we can build a better community, give, provide better help rather than just them going for overnight ER because person who's suicidal, just overnight ER does not help. Right. But there's one on that side. And second, we want to educate and have lots of conversation in all congregation that let's destigmatize mental health and look for holistic health. Because when we have some problem like diabetes, heart attack, or heart problems, we talk about it. We talk, help. Somebody takes the casserole and says, okay, I'm here to sit with you. But nobody wants to help person with mental health. So that's why the idea is to come forward and say, let's talk to each other. Let's give a lending uh, ear. Let's lend an ear or a helping hand to uh, everyone who needs it. You know, we've talked about the mental health crisis uh, in our country, in our state, the populations most impacted on our show, Rena. And when we think about just the shortage of uh, workers, uh, clinicians, psychiatrists to help uh, in this field, and then you want uh, trained clinicians who are culturally fluent, yeah. it sounds like there's a lot of barriers. Uh, are you seeing uh, progress? Um, not yet. There's a big shortage. So definitely a uh, shortage of people, skilled workers, social workers, as well as psychologists, psychiatrists. But we also have issue that people don't come out to seek for the help. So from both perspective, <clears throat> but we would like our officials, uh, our town officials to create a safe space for people to be able to come forward and create maybe some kind of centers or areas that people can come and talk about mental health. You're hearing Rena Kaur Aurora, again, a board member of Congregations Organized for New Connecticut, also known as Connect, and a member of the Sikh Gurdwara in Norwalk. Uh, she and earlier Thinvi Coach uh, were talking about the importance of cultural responsive mental health care. Coming up after a short break, we're going to check in with refugee resettlement agency IRIS, based in New Haven to learn how its wellness team has changed to meet the needs of Afghan and Ukrainian refugees. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're 
listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Coming up tomorrow, Chief of the Mohegan Tribe Lynn Malerba made history in 2010 as the first woman to lead the tribe in modern times. This September, she made history again when she was sworn in as U.S. Treasurer, the first Native American to serve in the role. On the next Where We Live, Treasurer Malerba joins us. We hope you join us, too. Now, today we've been talking to two Connecticut women who are survivors of genocide. Both Thinvi Koch and Rina Kaur Aurora struggled to find culturally fluent psychiatric care for themselves or their families, and which led them to help develop new models of mental health care for immigrant communities. Now, Connecticut is home to many other refugee populations who've fled war and persecution, and IRIS is one of the refugee resettlement agencies that help new arrivals. The New Haven-based nonprofit has a wellness team. We wanted to learn more. Joining us now on Zoom is Anne O'Brien, who's Director of Sponsorship at IRIS, again, Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services. Anne, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be back. And I'm so pleased that you are addressing this topic to continue to raise awareness of the need for more providers to go into this space and to be open to learning new ways of connecting with our new populations. Really appreciate you all addressing this. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. When we think about just the number of people Iris helps. And given what we have seen, world events uh, leading to more people coming to our state, uh, I'm wondering if you can talk about the volume that you have seen this year and, and how you're responding. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, it's 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 most accurate to talk um, not just about the volume that we're seeing, but there are also two other resettlement agencies in the state. Um, in addition to ourselves with we have offices in New Haven and Hartford and resettle with community groups around the state but there's also a resettlement agency Siri in Bridgeport and then another new one that came up popped up during the Afghan crisis last fall um, down in in Greenwich at Jewish Family Services between all of us um, we have resettled over a thousand refugees in the state and um, that includes Afghans, that includes folks from Syria, um, from Sudan, from Eritrea. And then most recently, although they don't come directly through our agencies, we are responding to an incredible influx of Ukrainians that are actually being um, brought to the country through a new program that the federal government set up where members of the general public, whether they be family or friends or otherwise, can apply to bring these newcomers to the United States and we get connected with them when they need help, right? Um, and it's uh, it's been very typical that they struggle initially with a number of things and their family trying to help the Ukrainians and then they end up approaching one of the resettlement agencies. So that's a, a new challenge. The, in the past year, IRIS um, alone, between our Afghan population, as well as the Ukrainians that we're working with, as well as um, Syrians and Sudanese and Congolese that are coming, we've been welcoming um, now over 800 newcomers. And so what we're seeing in terms of new trends um, are really through the Afghan and Ukrainian populations in that they're coming to our country directly from an active conflict zone. Mm -hmm. And that is relatively new. Um, usually, whether, they're, whether they are new migrants that are coming across the southern border or whether they're coming through our refugee resettlement program, 
they have been displaced from their country for many, many months or years upon years. And as horrible as it is, they've learned somewhat how to function with the trauma that they've had to endure. We do try to connect them with health care services. We do connect them with health services. And we have a health team that is focused on trying to go deeper um, with their needs. But this new aspect of having folks come straight from Afghanistan, from an active conflict zone, the same for the Ukrainian population, that um, puts a different twist on things in that um, they do need more assistance earlier, but at the same time, they have to get the basics of their lives going. And so it's it's a struggle in a different way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're not willing to or just capable of addressing their mental health needs straight on until well after their basic needs are met. And, and, and that's can you, been a struggle. And can you talk about that more, about the gaps in mainstream mental health care and how mm-hmm. you know you're seeing you and your team are seeing that there there may be you know there's not enough people to respond to this trauma and to do it in a way that's culturally responsive as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So just in the past year, we expanded our what we call our intensive case managers from um, two to now four. We added a licensed clinical social worker to do one-on-one sessions with folks that. When we notice that their mental health concerns are at a point that it's destabilizing the entire family, that they can't get to self-sufficiency just as a family unit, then we have to intervene as much as we can, not just in terms of supportive therapy, but we end up providing financial support because there's literally no service that exists out there for new immigrants other than ours that can provide that type of support. Mm-hmm. So to provide the, the one-on-one or the, the weekly um, deep check-ins, but also to provide the financial support. Um, and that's something that we don't think of as closely when you know folks that are dealing with mental health issues, we think of it in terms of gosh, they're having so much trouble accessing just, you know, mental health services. Well, the impact for some of these newcomers is that they literally can't um, function in a job. And so how is the family going to eat? And so we have to address it with an intensive whole case management approach. We have added um, multiple staff, not just within our health and wellness team, but other areas as well that are Pashtu and Dari speakers to help with the Afghan population. And we um, have started hiring those that are Ukrainian speakers as well. We've also um, decided that for the Ukrainian population, since that is spread throughout the state, that um, we're looking to hire a community health worker that um, is Ukrainian speaking, that will get people together in groups to just talk a little bit, um, to begin, processing what they need, because that's really the beginning steps. And usually to try to get together um, initially based on things that they like to do. And then we can begin having the other conversations in terms of what they're struggling with. So trying to come at it from a number of different ways, because 
although it sounds well and good to just go hire more <laughs> providers of mental health services, there are so very few that are available. Um, COVID really stretched the provider community um, beyond its capacity and burned people out. And so we're taking a couple of different approaches. Um, for instance, our licensed clinical social worker, our therapist that's providing one-on-one, -on -one, while she doesn't speak the languages of our clients, we have added a lot of um, deeply experienced translators, interpreters to be able to bridge that gap, not just in terms of language, but to bridge the gap culturally. And that's a lot for, for Iris uh, to uh, shoulder. And when I hear you talk about all these additions and it, and it, it is important and, and needed, you know, but, you know, broadly looking at other um, health organizations and institutions, the work that they need to do to make sure their clinicians and providers are also culturally responsive. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there. But Anne O'Brien, thank you so much for describing what you and your colleagues are doing at Iris. We really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you for raising this issue. We truly appreciate it. And I also want to thank Rena Kaur Aurora and Thienvi Coach for coming on the show, sharing a part of their personal story. It was very powerful to hear from both of you. We appreciate your time. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan, who is senior producer, but she's also senior health reporter. And she's a damn good one at that. We've produced a lot of great episodes together, Sujata. And you are a dear friend. I was lucky enough to also work with you. Thank you. <laughs>